You'll find the hymn we were just singing based on the passage we were just reading on page 197 in our hymn book. It's not up behind me anymore. The hymn is what's called a versification of the Isaiah passage. And it was originally penned in German by the hymn writer Johann Gottfried, better known by his Latin name, Johannes Olierius, and it was written by him in or around 1641. Now this composition was later translated into English by Catherine Winkworth and published in 1863. Catherine Winkworth translated a lot of German hymns into English. The occasion of its writing is the Advent season, but it's actually a little different aspect of the Advent season. The tune was written, you'll be happy to know this many of you, by John Calvin's choir master, who had been brought to Geneva to write new music and to modernize some of the older tunes. And you're thinking, that was a modernization of an older tune? And the answer is yes. And actually, he was jailed for a brief time at the end of his life for messing around with the old favorites. And it's a reminder that things don't change very much in this world. Nevertheless, he's the composer of many hymn tunes that are familiar to us, and familiar to the Reformed Church particularly, um, and are used right down to today, and especially many that are found in the Geneva Psalter. Now, though the hymn is a beautiful piece of versification, it's not as well known as some of our other Advent or, or Christmas hymns, because it was traditionally sung only once a year, in the English church particularly, in association with the celebration of the birth of John the Baptist, or John the Forerunner, as I prefer to call him. It's nestled in our hymn book between the hymns, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, and the hymns that then deal with Christ's birth, the birth narrative hymns. It's appropriately sung during this season because of the very character of the biblical text and the description of John the Forerunner's mission, which was to prepare the way for the birth of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. If you remove from the story of John, if you remove from his life and mission, the story of Christ, it all becomes meaningless. John just falls into obscurity. From the prophecies concerning him, to the announcement of his birth in the temple at Jerusalem, to the reaction in the womb, his reaction in the womb, to the arrival of Mary, who was carrying the Christ child, to the great hymn of his father, to the gospel analysis of his ministry. It all revolves around and is connected to the Lord Jesus Christ, the one John called the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, if you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 40, or you can, it'll perhaps show up behind me, I'm not sure. But if you turn there, you'll be turning to the portion of the prophet's writing in which he is inspired to deal with the work, the mission, and really the design of the Messiah's coming. And this portion of Isaiah's prophetic work 
begins with those haunting words. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. The prophet's message from the Lord begins with that plaintive cry that has been probably made most famous in the Messiah by George Frederick Handel, but it is a, a cry that is very unique in its character. It can be understood as the call to let forth a deep sigh of relief. That's what comfort is, it's that deep sigh of relief. You should think of it as being perhaps the the reaction that comes when you're confronting a life or death situation and the outcome is doubtful and you're waiting for the news one way or the other and the message finally comes, it's life, it's life. And if you're the one who's waiting to hear that message, when you hear that, it's life, you, you have that sigh, that sense of relief, that gladness that, that fills your heart, that comfort, and that's the comfort that the Lord is speaking of here through his prophet when he says, comfort, comfort you, my people. Sigh with a deep sense of relief. In the context, these were not good times for the Jews. Their corruption was growing and they were becoming ripe for judgment. But as sad as all that appeared, the Lord communicates to them through the prophet that there is good news. The Lord, their Redeemer, was coming to secure their salvation. The comfort provided here <coughs> excuse me, is enhanced by a reality that really provides the greatest assurance of the matter. First, this is the promise of God, the Holy One who cannot lie and who is able to do all his will and to fulfill all his promises. It doesn't really matter what the landscape looks like. This is his promise, and it will be fulfilled. All those that he intends should be comforted are comforted, because everything he promised for the comfort of his people through the Messiah has and will be provided. He says later, the prophet, I, uh, the Lord says through the prophet in Isaiah 51, verse 12, I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of a man who dies, of the son of man who is made like grass? I, I am the one who comforts you. Take confidence in that. The second comfort comes from the fact that this is your God if you are in Christ Jesus this morning. He is bound by a holy covenant with himself to bring to every believer the sure mercies of David, the forgiveness of your sins, redemption, and newness of life. He is bound to you by his divine covenant. And when he is bound to you by his divine covenant, then neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This call for comfort is followed 
by a further message here in verse 2. In verse 2, after saying, Comfort you, my people, be comforted, sigh with relief. Then he says, Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Faith doesn't fear, beloved, to take the full comfort that the gospel offers. The warfare is ended and iniquity is pardoned for all of those who are gods in Christ Jesus. Life itself is a sort of warfare. This is so because of its very nature. At one point, Eliphaz says to Job, and this is in Job chapter 5 and verse 6, Affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. But man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. Job looked at his life, and he says in Job chapter 7 and verses 1 through 3, Has not man a hard service on earth? And are not his days like the days of a hired hand, like a slave who belongs for the shadow? And like a hired hand who looks for his wages, so I am allotted months of emptiness and nights of misery are appointed to me. And Solomon in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 says in verse 22, What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. I think probably we could say that every one of us have had a sleepless night at one time or another because of the burdens and the sorrows of this world. And all of this is because of what was said to Adam. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. But what's the message here in Isaiah? That warfare, which is epitomized by life itself, is finished for all who are in Christ Jesus. By his coming and living a perfect life and offering a perfect sacrifice for your sins, he has put an end, as Tyler was saying earlier, to the enmity between you and your God. But he's also put an end to the enmity within yourself. And I can't think of a better way to express it. Our sinful nature is contrary in every way to our best interests. It separates us from God, our creator, the one who loves us. And it makes you a willing volunteer in the service of the one who hates you and longs to see you dead. You who believe can let out a great sigh of relief this morning 
Because Christ came to put an end to all that by dying for you on the cross of Calvary. Bearing your griefs, carrying your sorrows, being stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for your transgressions, crushed for your iniquities. The Father having laid upon him the iniquity of us all. As Henry puts it, Matthew Henry, the cause of your trouble is removed, and because that has been taken away, all the ill effects cease. Anyone here who has not looked on the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, anyone here who is burdened with life, anyone here who finds it hard service, has tasted the bitter disappointment of sin's curse and the bondage of sin, the cry of the prophet here is for you. Comfort you. Be comforted. Sigh with relief. The Lord has ended that warfare for you through the Lord Jesus Christ and pardoned your sins. Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There are different understandings among godly men about the interpretation of the phrasing that involves the prophet telling the people that they have received double for all their sins from the hand of the Lord. But the context seems to suggest that the Lord has supplied in a double way for the curse, or the cure, I should say, of our sins, including forgiveness for the past and grace and strength for the future. That is relief from the curse produced by them and the curse that bred them, both. The curse that they have brought down on us and being relieved from the curse that's produced by them that follows us. The curse that bred them and the curse that they are. The double benefit is referred to in Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 2, in verses 14 through 15, we read this. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise took partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So he has saved us from the curse of the sin, that is the judgment of our sins, but he has also saved us from that lifelong slavery to sin. Now our hymn here ends with these lines. Make ye straight what long was crooked. Make the rougher places plain. Let your hearts be true and humble as befits his holy reign. For the glory of the Lord, now or earth is shed abroad, and all flesh shall see the token that his word is never broken. It's that final phrase that I want to fix on your minds as we close our meditation today. All of this, the decorations, the beautiful music we heard, the biblical record, 
the reign of Christ in your hearts as believers, all of it is just this, the token that his word cannot be broken. The glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together, the prophet said in the name of the Lord, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. And that's why it's so. And that's why we have what we have. And that's why we rejoice in the things that we have. Because the flower fades and the grass withers, but the word of God will stand forever. Opposers and critics of God's word and promises come and go like grass and flowers. They have their moment and then they're gone. Surely the people is grass. But this word... It perseveres relentlessly. Folks who have been comforted by the gospel can be found in every age of human history. They can be found in the most obscure and the most populous places of the world. They can be found among men and women of the highest stations in life and among those in the most humble conditions. Coles, in his commentary, says... God is forever truthful and therefore both fully disposed and richly able to make good every word he has spoken. In the word of God, beloved, you find the truths which are essential to salvation. These truths represent facts upon which every promise stands. But the wonderful thing about this prophecy is that it sets forth promises as truths based on facts. Facts yet to be realized in what we mistakenly call real time. 700 years before, in the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a woman, born of the law, to redeem those who were under the law. 700 years before that, Isaiah assured the world of the facts concerning God's word and promise. Assured them that the word of God abides and stands forever and spoke of what God will do, would do as if it were done. That's because of the surety of the word. Calvin says, this passage comprehends the whole gospel in few words. For it consists of an acknowledgement of our misery, poverty, and emptiness that being sincerely humbled, we may fly to God, by whom alone home we shall be perfectly restored. Let not men therefore faint or be discouraged by the knowledge of their nakedness and emptiness, for the eternal word is exhibited to them by which they may be abundantly supported and upheld. Consider this, beloved. This is not just the eternal word by which truth men and women are saved in all ages. It's the eternal truth by which you who believe may breathe out the heaviest sigh of relief because nothing that is promised to you, nothing that has been promised to you in all of God's word, not one thing, not one jot, not one tittle, not one thing will fail. It will all come to the fullest fruition. Peter, writing in his first epistle, says there, 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, let your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially, according to each one's deed. Conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last time for the sake of you who through him are believing in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly with a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Amen. Let's pray. 
Father in heaven, we thank you for this sigh of comfort that we have been liberated to give through the work of Jesus Christ. Through your sending your son to die for us, for bringing an end to the warfare, and Lord, bringing to us true peace. Father, we ask you to bless us under that comforting sigh. And may it warm our hearts to praise and glorify you, both now and forever. Lord, if there's anyone here who has not come to that place where they have been able to feel in their hearts that comfort, that peace, that sigh of relief, then we pray, Lord, that even now you would have mercy on them. All day long today, this message has been preached to them. This message of salvation and peace through the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that on this day it will come to them. And that they will know the peace that passes understanding. And sigh with joy and comfort. And knowing that their sins are forgiven. And their warfare is ended. Be merciful, O Lord, even as you've shown mercy. We ask these things now in Jesus, our Savior's name.